Hi everyone and welcome to the Genomics Lab podcast, the podcast about current research in the field of genomics. We are your hosts, Eleanor Watson and Olivia Grant, two PhD students in the genomics group at the University of Essex. Join us as we speak to researchers in the field about their current research and their journey into genomics. Welcome back everyone to another episode of the Genomics Lab. So today we are super excited um, as we are joined by Professor Wendy Bickmore, who is a director of the MRC Human Genetics Unit um, at the University of Edinburgh. So thank you so much, Wendy, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Nice to be talking to you, Olivia and Eleanor. <laughs> so uh, do you want to just start off by giving us an introduction to you? I'm sure, to be honest, a lot of our listeners will probably know. But um, for those who don't, if you could just give us a little bit of an introduction to you and what you do. What I do now is mainly sit in front of a computer talking to other people. <laughs> like everybody. <laughs> yeah, like, like most scientists. Yeah. But, uh, but I think uh, scientifically, I, I call myself a cell biologist of the genome. Okay. Uh, I'm really fascinated by how the genome is structured in three dimensions mm. and, and how that helps to regulate both gene activation and gene repression uh, in development, how that can go awry in disease. So I, I'm lucky enough to run a, an active research lab here at the MRC Human Genetics Unit, but then have a number of other hats too many other hats as well so I get, I get to direct the unit as well so I get to enjoy everybody else's science at the same time nice. uh, and to be Sounds involved. like best of both worlds <laughs> yeah no I think so yeah I get all the reflected glory of everybody else's success <laughs> we've always said we can't wait until that stage comes <laughs> yeah it, 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 it's a lot of fun actually it, it's not something I ever aspired to do but I you know yeah. As I progressed, I did become more and more interested in what people around me were doing, not just my own science. And, uh, yeah. It, it, it's, it's fascinating to see how other people attack questions, mm -hmm. go about yeah. setting up their experiments. And it really, yeah. it really helps to inform your own view as well. Yeah, I was about what's to important in biology. Yeah, you get a very rounded view of the subject. Always influences you, doesn't it? I think that's why yes. like everyone always says, you know, like you shouldn't stay in one place so for like your whole career you should always bounce around and go to different labs because it helps you yeah. change your way of like looking at things yeah yeah so can you tell us a little bit about like how you got interested in uh science overall like what made you uh sort of pursue this career ah well um i didn't think didn't think i wanted to be a scientist actually um, i think at school i wanted to be a medical doctor Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, but uh, then during one summer holiday when I was working, I think in a canteen for my, uh, to raise some money, I, I got hold of a paperback book by Stephen Rose called The Chemistry of Life, which is kind of an introduction to biochemistry. And I was just completely hooked by that. I think, you know, when I was at school, biology was quite a traditional subject and it really wasn't very molecular at that time you know it was a long yeah. time ago um, but the idea that you could kind of um, probe biological mechanisms by uh, looking at chemistry and chemical reactions was like an eye-opener to me and I thought oh well this is actually what I want to learn about so I decided to study biochemistry instead uh, oh, at right. university which, which I absolutely loved um, because it is a lovely mixture of biology 
with real organic chemistry and actually quite a lot of physics and maths as well. So it was a re I still think it's a really fascinating subject, even though I wouldn't count myself as a biochemist now. Uh, <laughs> but, but I never regret that training. I think that, you know, it really embeds in you a quantitative mindset, uh, yeah. you know, measuring things, concentrations, KDs, on-off rates, all those kinds of concepts stick in your head, I think. I think that's so useful to have all of that knowledge in your head because it doesn't come up often, I think, no. in what I do. Um, but when it does, if you didn't know what someone was talking about, it would go right over your head. Like, it, I think it is yeah. really handy to have those kind of basic skills, even if you don't use them day in, day out. It's yeah, no, I agree. So, so I was actually never taught genetics. You know, it's, it's a bit <laughs> ironic. You know, I, I'm yeah. director of a human genetics unit, but I was never actually taught any genetics. And, and, but genetics is something you can pick up. It's kind of common sense. Yeah. Uh, whereas I think hardcore biochemistry, you have to be taught. Yeah. Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. There's some, some difficult concepts and some hardcore learning to be done, you know, on the properties of amino acids and things like that. So I yeah, think genetics as well, you can you can relate to that quite easily. I that's where I got into genetics. I because it's interesting, isn't it? It's you know, mm. why why do I have blue eyes when my mom's got blue eyes, my dad's got brown yeah. eyes? It's instantly interesting and personable to you. Whereas the biochemistry, you can't. You can't see it. No, it's more abstract. You do yeah. have to learn it, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Oh. So, yeah, and then I was lucky enough in the last year of my undergraduate degree to be able to do a research project. Um, and I was lucky enough to go and do it in the MRC's Molecular Hematology Unit, um, where they were studying the genetics of... Um, thalassemias and globin gene regulation so that's when I really got my first interest I guess in long-range gene regulation mm -hmm. um, because of course you know the locus control region for the beta globin uh, yeah. gene is is the cl classic example of a long-range enhancer and I remember be being in an undergraduate lecture when I lecture when I think it was given by uh, John Clegg who was one of the discoverers of the beta thalassemias being told about these families who clearly had beta thalassemia and couldn't make beta globin uh, properly and yet there was nothing wrong with the beta globin gene and it was discovered that they, these families had deletions uh, of a non piece of non-coding DNA 25 kilobases upstream of the yeah. gene and uh, at the time 25 kilobases seemed like a million miles away but of course that's actually now rather a close enhancer really close. <laughs> yeah really quite close but but I, yeah, that, I found that fact amazing <laughs> that yeah. piece of piece of yeah, DNA so far away could be so critical for regulating a gene expression so I guess that hooked me into that area of, of kind of chromosome biology almost uh, and it was that experience of being embedded in a research environment in a research institute that convinced me I wanted to do a PhD because actually I, I hated undergraduate practicals I couldn't yeah, do them. I they always were wrong. I got no satisfaction from yeah. them at all. So if it hadn't been for that research project, I don't think I'd be a scientist, actually. I don't know about you, but my undergrad project, so our labs um, were like underground. They were in the basement. So there was no windows. There was no natural light. You get mm. the whole like, leave everything outside. Um, you can't really go out to eat or use the loo. Or have a drink because yeah. they're all like well you have to derobe and re you know it's all so it was so strict and now it's so chilled at 
postgrad level but undergrad yeah. was so strict and you'd be stuck in this horrible lab yeah. for six hours on end and I'd just get home in the worst mood and hate it yeah but actually looking back like did some quite cool stuff um just in- for me, I think the frustration was when it didn't work, you never found out why it didn't work. You made a mistake and you never had the chance to correct it. Right? So yep. you couldn't go back and do it again the next day. So yeah. I just found that not very inspiring. Whereas when you have, you know, a long research placement as part of your degree, you've got the time to make mistakes, troubleshoot, correct them and get that satisfaction out of getting something to work yourself. Yes. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. So it's so important that that stays part of undergraduate science teaching, I think. Mm. Yeah. I think it's amazing as well, like how many people are like so heavily influenced by their six month undergraduate research projects, like a lot of people that we speak to, that is literally the reason that they went on to do a PhD and it's exactly the same as me. So I think it's so interesting, like I think really important that like a lot of PIs and professors like actually remember like or recognise how influential that can be on like someone's career. Yeah, don't we Ellie? Yeah, that, definitely. That, that's a really good point, you know, and one of, the, you know, we're going to talk about the pandemic at some point, I'm sure. I mean, oh, that one of the things from the pandemic, because of course our laboratories are open at very reduced occupancies, we haven't been really able to take undergraduates in for honours projects yeah. or anything. They've all had to be remote online, so they've missed that experience, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, mine was bioinformatics, and that's like where I fell in love with bioinformatics, because I was the same in the lab, like I messed everything up. I hated it. I never had the confidence mm. to do anything, so I never mm. enjoyed it. But when I did bioinformatics and I was like on my own and yeah. didn't have to worry about anyone looking at me getting something wrong, like mm. I think that's why I fell in love with it because yeah. like there's no one there to watch me and judge me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It makes a yeah. big difference actually, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. So so I did decide to to do a PhD. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do it in. But I knew where I wanted to go because I was at, when I was at university, I, I come from the south of England originally, um, but when I was at university, I used to hang out in the summer holidays with a, a lot of people who were into kind of mountain climbing and rock climbing and walking. So we used to spend all our summer holidays in Scotland, traveling around, oh, walking. So I, I just wanted to go to Scotland. <laughs> so so wow. I just applied to labs in Glasgow and Edinburgh uh, on all kinds of subjects. Um, um, and the one that accepted me was uh, Ed Sutton's mammalian genome unit, which was just the most amazing place. Um, if you can imagine, so that was in 1983, I started my PhD. So you know, no sequencing, nothing like that. Um, and yet this very small MRC unit of about four or five PIs, was doing really advanced kind of genome biology and trying to make artificial chromosomes, discovering CPG islands and telomeres and, you know, making really seminal discoveries in chromosome biology. It was the most amazing academic environment to be in. It was literally in a porter cabin. But, um, <laughs> I, I feel really, really lucky to have done my PhD there. Yeah. Um, I love that you chose the area rather than the subject yeah. I think we we speak to people who've chosen where they wanted to go for so many different reasons yeah but I don't think we've ever had anyone say like <laughs> to go to Scotland yeah like, no, lots, pretty cool lots of people say well how did you plan your research career and basically there wasn't a plan yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, a, I'm a great believer in serendipity you know you do what's right for you at the time and make the most of it um, yes yeah. make, make most of the situation you find yourself in um, yeah. So yeah, I ended up in Edinburgh, and and I have never left. 
<laughs> for my whole academic career. I've changed, lab, I've changed labs, I've changed research areas a lot, but I've, I've never left the city. Uh, it's a great city to do science in, and, yeah. and very, very good for genome biology. But then my PhD was uh, quite esoteric in a way, I suppose. It was about exchanges of large bits of chromosome material between the sex chromosomes, the X and the Y, during primate evolution. Okay. So I was, uh, I think one of the first things my supervisor got me to do was to go to the zoo and collect <laughs> blood from a range of monkeys, male and female monkeys. Um, wow, so cool. And then I was trying to you know, clone particular sequences of the X and Y chromosomes into uh, cosmid libraries. I don't think anybody makes a cosmid library these days, but that's, what I, was, so. that's what I was doing, basically. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and, and loved cool. it, yeah. And, and everything was was done by hand. You know, there was no kits, there was no robots. You know, you poured a sequencing gel yourself, which was about you know, yeah. two, <laughs> two foot high, made of glass, panes of glass. You know, you had to clean meticulously, pour your own acrylamide gels, uh, and, I, and I, I just loved all that. You know, getting your hands dirty kind of stuff. Yeah, mm. so I had yeah. great, I had great time. We kind of spoiled that we don't need to do that, but also. It would kind of be nice to experience all of that. Yeah. Just once, you know, going back to basics and just doing it all yourself, not having all the cool technology. Yeah. Yeah. You learn a lot. I mean, yeah. again, it goes back to the chemistry. You really learn the basics because you make everything yourself. Yeah. Um, from, from scratch. Yeah. Um, no, but it's also slow. I, I spent six months, I think, cloning and sequencing two kilobases of DNA, <laughs> which, you know, oh, you, you probably, you're probably doing an afternoon now. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it was slow. Oh my goodness. But, but great fun. So you meant like, so what you've said so far about like, sort of, I guess like the early years of your career mm. means like, obviously all sits within the same theme, but quite different to what you're doing now. Yeah. Um, or what the focus of your lab is now. Could you tell us what, what is the focus of your lab? Do you want me to tell you what the focus is or tell you how I got to that focus? Both. Both. Okay. Start with how so you that, got there. That, that was going yeah. yeah. How I got there is more interesting in a way. <laughs> yeah. Start um, that then. <laughs> it's all about serendipity again. So um, we, uh, we're uh, quite big believers in that too. So yeah, that's quite nice, aren't we, Liz? <laughs> yeah. After after my PhD, I decided to do a postdoc. Um, um, I did one with uh, Nick Hasty, and I was trying to clone a gene for a human genetic disease called Wilms tumor, uh, which I failed to do, by the way. So I didn't didn't achieve that. Um, but we, you know, there was no genome sequence. We didn't know where the gene was on the chromosome. So it was kind of, you know, putting a jigsaw puzzle together to try and A, find where the genes were on the chromosome and then B, find out which was the Wilms tumor gene. So I was making a lot of um, long range maps of the genome using pulse field gel electrophoresis and cloning with cosmids and, and large capacity vectors and stuff like that. Um, so I'd made this big map. I had a 7 million base pair map of the region where I knew this disease gene must be. Um, and I could see there was an interesting pattern to the map uh, in that all the genes was, were down one end of it. And then there was, seemed to be like a huge, great big desert at the other end where there were no genes, which I found interesting, but I didn't know what to do about it at the time. But then our labs had to get refurbished. So our group was scattered all over the Institute and sent to different places, anywhere they could find a spare bench to house us. So um, I got sent to I think what my friends thought was the, was the short straw, which was the cytogenetics department. Okay. 
and, and for a group of molecular biologists, you know, cytogenetics seemed, you know, like ancient history. You know, who, who <laughs> yeah. wants to who wants to do that? Look at chromosomes down a microscope when you can clone stuff and sequence it, and you know, um, do all this cool molecular biology stuff. But so yeah, I got sent to the place where cytogeneticists make chromosome spreads, uh, and one of them, Judy Fantes, asked me if I've ever, ever made or seen chromosomes, and I hadn't. So she showed me how to make human metaphase chromosomes, drop them, and stain them. And it was one of those kind of eureka moments. I'm like, oh my God, these are really beautiful to look at. And oh, they've got an interesting pattern on them with these stripes, these bands. And then in my head, two things went together. I said, oh, I wonder if my map that I've made to try and find the Wilms tumor gene relates to the way the chromosomes look down the microscope. Okay. So uh, I got to the subject area I've stayed with for my whole career through an accident of building renovation. Yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. Everyone has a different story to tell, and they're all pretty strange. Some they're of all, them. Yeah, yeah. But I think weird. this is one of one of the weirdest. <laughs> and um, it, it's something I try and tell my lab, and I, I think they probably largely ignore me. It's about <laughs> you know when you're reading papers or going to seminars to go out of your comfort zone. Just don't go to the the read the papers in your own area or go to the seminars in your area make it make an effort to go to the ones you think aren't relevant at all to what you do because that will give you the left field ideas which put you ahead of the field that make you think differently give give you the real competitive edge um so i, I i'm you know there's so much literature now it's very very hard to keep up uh, and, I, and I've kind of given up reading the current journals. I just can't keep up. I rely on Twitter and things to find things. But yeah. I decided that, uh, that also because in Twitter you tend to follow people who've got the same interests. Like I, was, I was missing yeah. that, that kind of spontaneity. So um, I, I, I get sent still through the post a few journals um, yeah. where I'm an editor of. So that they sit in a big pile unread mainly. But, but when I travel or I've got, you know, a, a day where I just want to do some reading, I, I take to the habit of just randomly taking an old journal. doesn't matter how old, you know, it could, yeah. be, could be five years old and just, read, and just reading it cover to cover to see what's I in it. That's that's such great advice um I, mean, I think it's what we've tried to emulate a little bit with this podcast yeah. was just the fact that we we're saying there is so much literature we yeah. don't have time or really sounds awful to no. say it, but inclination to read mm -hmm. through it all um, that's right and it's also just not knowing what to read yeah, yeah. Where, yeah. where do you even start so I think that's one of the things that we wanted to achieve out of this was getting people on speaking to them about their work um yeah, so just we speak about their papers. Some people we speak about their broad area of mm -hmm. research. Um, but that's another thing we try, we never really say no to anyone, even if they approach us and say, okay. it's not your normal area of things that you talk <laughs> about, but I'd love yeah. to talk about. We're always like, yeah, you know what? It doesn't matter if it's yeah, something yeah. a bit different. Because, like you say, rounds you as a scientist doesn't it, it? does yeah no it's, it's really interesting and but of course you have got to keep up with your own area and I it's, it's becoming harder and harder to do because just the, the volume of literature I think the best way to do that now is, is conferences yeah. and I know we can't have real conferences at the moment but they will come back um, they will. so for me that's how I keep up the area I just go, go go to a conference and listen to what people are doing yeah um i think that's that gives you a good feel for the zeitgeist in the area and what, what the big questions are who's doing what kind of experiments yeah definitely yeah. Mm -hmm. 
so yeah so that's that's how i got interested in genome organization through 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 looking at chromosomes yeah yeah and then when i finished my my postdoc i decided i wanted to try and go through the independence route and i um decided to ask the question well you know does does the organization of can i prove that the organization of, of genes along a chromosome matches the chromosome banding pattern so mm -hmm. together with my first phd student we designed a, a which I still think it's a really beautiful experiment where we purified the promoters of genes through CPG islands and, and painted them onto chromosomes with different fluorescent colours and then we got the beautiful banding pattern out. So it was a really fantastic demonstration before the genome was sequenced that actually our genes are concentrated in particular areas of our genome. Mm -hmm. So that led me into what I've been interested in for my uh, whole career, you know, how are chromosomes arranged inside the nucleus, um, how they raise relative to the edge of the nucleus or, or other landmarks within the nucleus, um, how are repressed and expressed regions organized in 3D space. Uh, and of course, more recently, that's evolved into the you know, concepts of topologically associated domains and, mm -hmm. and, and how long range uh, enhancers work and how that is related to 3D folding. So it's been a kind of constant evolution from then yeah. driven driven of course by technology you know just just as i was starting to do those first experiments was when fluorescence microscopy was really coming uh, you know, coming to the fore because before then uh, to look at where something mapped on a chromosome you had to use uh, tritium okay. to label your probe so you'd put it down on a on x-ray cassette wait three months for the result and you know, you'd get a few grains so <laughs> So it really wasn't till fluorescent microscopy came along where you could, you know, see the result immediately and paint in different colours that all this became possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, so interesting. And your work is really, really cool. Can I ask a question, which is like, how? What do you think is the benefits to understanding more about how um, to understanding more about like how the three D genome works? I, I mainly do it because I find it fascinating question. I find it amazing to think how complicated the inside of the nucleus must be. So for me, the, the main driver is, is, is just a pure intellectual curiosity, but it's quite clear now that uh, a large number of human genetic disorders are caused by mutations in long range enhancers in the non-coding genome, which we understand very little about, uh, both in terms of their primary sequence and how they work, but also the 3D folding and how that works. Uh, and, and, you know, we're seeing mutations in the machinery that creates a lot of 3D genome also causing major human genetic diseases. So that's on one hand. Uh, but also, on the other hand, of course, if we think about common genetic disease and the genetic variants rather than mutations that we share between us and, and the genome-wide association studies that have looked at where the risk factors are in our genome that might predispose any of us to cancer or, or coronary heart disease or diabetes, et cetera. You know, most of those sites of genetic variation are, are located in, in intergenic regions, very likely enhancers, not in genes, uh, because they have very small effect sizes. They have subtle effects on our biology. So understanding that is, is, is key to understanding human genetic variation, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we've mentioned a couple of times this you know we've mentioned um long-range interactions and enhancers mm. um we kind of do assume that most of our listeners will sort of know these terms but for those who don't or maybe just want a refresher what exact how do we define what is an enhancer and what isn't yeah so uh 
classically an enhancer was defined as a piece of DNA that could activate gene expression when placed either upstream or downstream of a gene, usually in a reporter assay. Um, but now I think it's taken on the meaning as uh, the, the sites, I, I think of them as genetic switch elements. So they are the sites that drive tissue specific gene expression. They are the platforms where the tissue specific transcription factors bind to activate gene expression. So it's kind of, you know, the, the gene itself is pretty boring. You know, you've got exons, you've, all that stuff's important, splicing, all that kind of stuff. And you've got a promoter where the RNA polymerase starts transcribing. Mm -hmm. But the control part, you know, when and where you're expressed lies in the enhancer elements. Mm. So it's that that part of the logic is located elsewhere. <clears throat> and that's something that's very particular to complex organisms. So you can do metazoans, drosophila, um, vertebrates, mammals. Uh, and you don't really see it in simple organisms like yeast because they don't have to do very, very complicated gene regulation. They, they might have to activate or repress their genes in response to the available of a, a particular nutrient, or if they want to do meiosis, but all that regulation is done at the promoter. Mm -hmm. But as, as cellular complexity um, grew, um, you had to switch genes on and off in many, many different situations, and you just can't encode all the information in the promoter. So you started to have to have, to have other elements come in and help build up that kind of re regulatory logic of when to turn a gene on uh, or, or off actually so yeah and, and that i think so people say why are these bits of dna so far away from the genes that they regulate i think it's just because they can be i don't think there's any particular importance in them being a long way away but if you're just going to add start adding more and more and more enhancers to a gene to control this expression they they've got they've got to get further away because all the other space yeah. has been taken up by other stuff so I don't think there's any magic in the fact that they're far away. It's just that they can be, you know, yeah. and, and they evolution's tolerated them if they work well enough. Yeah. From a million base pairs away, that's fine. There they stay yeah. in the genome. Oh, that's interesting. I assume that there's a rhyme or reason for why they're there. But, yeah. No, you know, yeah, just interesting. Probably, I, I, probably I, go for, I go for Occam's razor. Yeah, the simplest explanation yeah. is just that's where they work. Yeah. Yeah. I have two questions on that. Yeah. And the first one is, um, how exactly does then an enhancer contact the gene? Um, well, of course, that, yeah, that's the most important question in the field. Uh, and I don't know the answer. Um, I, I'm not sure the enhancer, as in the genetic element, ever actually has to touch the promoter of the gene itself. Okay. I don't think the two bits of the genome ever need to contact each other in a, in a molecular sense. Mm -hmm. They've got to, information has got to be passed from one to the other that doesn't need physical contact necessarily so there are there are a number of models of course uh, one of which is is the looping model that is the idea that the two bits of dna actually got to come very close together yeah. uh, and that that may be true for some enhancers uh, i'm not saying that 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 isn't a valid mechanism um although i don't understand what happens when those two elements come together is, is a molecule supposed to jump from one strand of dna to the other i don't know um uh, some of the original models of how enhancers work, work were very linear, that, that things recruited at the enhancer, including RNA polymerase, was, would then just move along the intervening DNA until they hit the promoter. And I think for enhancers that are located very close, you know, in a few kilobases or so, the promoter, I think that yeah. probably is the mechanism, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and then more recently, 
this idea of transcriptional hubs has arisen which I find really uh, fascinating so the idea that the enhancer and the promoter don't actually have to physically have to get together but they both have to engage in a particular space inside the nucleus um, in which there are high concentrations of transcription factors and co-activators for transcription and polymerase etc and so then <laughs> this is the biochemistry in me coming out again so actually just biochemistry then drives the reaction yeah. yeah, it's all about concentrations and mass action, um, and that's yeah. I guess that's why I like this model a lot because it's so it goes back to simple chemical principles again. Don't need any magic three D confirmation as such. It's just you've got to be in the right vicinity yeah. for things to happen. Um, so I think the, the the transcriptional hub kind of biophysical models are really interesting. One really really hard to think of the right experiments to prove <laughs> that that, yeah. that, 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 that it's the mechanism. I, I think that's the trouble now. Is actually you know we've got great tools for measuring stuff now. You know we can image stuff. We can do high C. We can produce all this data, but it's all correlative. Mm -hmm. How do you do the mechanistic experiment that actually prove what the mechanism is? That's much much more difficult. Yeah, and, and that's really yeah. the focus of what we're trying to do at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's really interesting as well. What did like what did we know about first? Was it chromatin looping or that enhances control uh, distal genes? Like which one did we know about first? Oh, we knew about enhances controlling distal yeah. genes first. Well, but you know, I go back to beta globin and, and the locus control region. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, that, that you know, it was genetics that led us to the discovery that dis, you know, distal enhancers can control genes. Mm -hmm. And forgive me if this is like a naive question, but so you, you've obviously just mentioned about how enhancers don't actually contact promoters. Or might not. Might, might not. Might not need to, yeah. So then how, how did, how was it shown that enhancers can actually um, regulate expression of uh, genes, you know, which are really, really far away from from them. Genetics, genetics. Yeah. yeah, take the enhancer out, and you find the gene doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that's the beauty of genetics. You know, it's it, it's the best way of getting at causal mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's it's pretty easy to um, yeah. fiddle around with genetics, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. Our, our, our ability to manipulate the genome is is incredible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean that's that actually is why I really like human genetics now as well because you know it's there's so much human genetic information out there. You know, I think it can be a real um, goldmine in terms of tools to identify mechanisms. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so um, I hear you talk a lot. I might be jumping ahead, but I feel like I can't wait to ask this question. I hear you talk a lot about like the four D genome. <laughs> yeah. And I think before you said it, I've never really like, I never heard anyone say 4D genome. Hmm. We're trying to guess the fourth dimension. Is it time? Time, yeah. yeah. Three, 3D plus time. Yeah. yeah. Because of course it's, it's, it's dynamic across all kinds of different timescales. I mean, very locally, of course, chromatin's moving very fast, but in a very small volume. Yeah. Over long timescales during the cell cycle, it will move a bit. But of course, over development, it moves a lot. And, and the 3D genome changes uh, as gene expression changes. How, how much of that is just a reflection of gene expression and how much of it drives gene expression, we don't know. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I feel yeah, like time and time is the other dimension. Mm -hmm. How mm. easy is that to measure the 
mm. the fourth dimension. Oh, very, 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 very hard. I yeah. was going to say, I can imagine <laughs> yeah. that's no, really it's re challenging. <laughs> really, really tough. No, so um, the imaging that my lab mainly does, old-fashioned old fluorescence in situ hybridization, of course, is yeah. done on fixed cells. So yeah. they're not dynamic anymore. You fix them and yeah. killed them. <clears throat> so you, But you can infer something about 4D genome if you yeah. image at fixed time points after a you know, particular thing, differentiation or, or adding a stimulus to a cell. So we can extract some aspects of 4D that way. Um, you know, we can drive embryonic stem cells to become other cell types and compare the 3D genome in different cell states and infer something about 4D genome. But of course, what everyone really wants to do is to be able to visualize individual sites in the genome in live cells. Yeah. And you can do that to a certain extent with tools like DEDCAS9, helping to recruit, yeah. you know, GFP molecules or other fluorescent reporters like that to particular sites in the gene. But it's a huge challenge. The signal to noise problem is a real challenge. It's fine for repeats for single copy low sites, a real technical challenge still. Um, and I have some really deep concerns about what these tools actually do to the genome as well. Yeah. If you think about how DEDCAS9 binds to a particular target sequence, mm -hmm. um, it, 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 what it does is open up the double helix and the guide RNA then slots in. Um, so you've made an R loop basically yeah. uh, and a DNA RNA hybrid. Uh, and if you ask how stable that structure is, it's it stays there for hours and hours. And so nothing could get past it. So RNA polymerase can't get past it. So how can you image events like gene expression when you've stuck this, <laughs> this, super, this thing like super glue in the way? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm really worried about how much the tools perturb the actual process that we're trying to study. Um, so, you know, we're still working on that, but I, I always like to go back to kind of the gold standard of, of fluorescence in situ hybridization as a reality check as well. Mm -hmm. And I think we've been able to extract some really useful and exciting insights into some of the dynamic aspects of chromosome organization by studying fixed time points yeah but i'm sure eventually you know the technology will get will get much better that we can image sites in the gym it will do yeah yeah but but still it, it's quite a challenge to image cells live because of course it's not good for the cell's health either to have late you know high intensity lasers no. shone at it for you know however long you want to follow um so you know there's there's so many technical challenges and caveats that you have to be cognizant of yeah in, in trying to do this you know the, the goal sounds laudable but i think you have to be continue questioning yourself about what you're doing yeah it, it sounds like it shouldn't be too difficult does it mm. you know measuring something over time people mm. do that all the time you, you you think that it will be mm. fairly easy, but when you actually get down to like the nitty gritty stuff, it, it's not at all. No, it's really no, difficult. You, no, cells die after a while from phototoxicity. Yeah. Yeah. So coming back to what we, you know, we were talking about the different um, theories, I guess, for like how enhancers work. How are you sort of how how do, are your lab like looking at this? So what sort of experiments are you like doing? I know we've obviously just touched on them a little yeah. bit. Yeah, oh. we, we, yeah, um, we're doing mainly mainly two types of experiments. So so one uh, is using pure genetics, uh, and I'm working um, very closely with Bob Hill's group here at the institute, 
um, Bob is the discoverer of one of the classic long range enhancers, the limb enhancer of Sonic Hedgehog, mm -hmm. um, which famously point mutations in this enhancer um, produce six toed cats and six fingered people. Um, so, uh, and that enhancer is located a million base pairs away from the gene that it regulates in limb development. Um, so one, one of the really interesting things about long range enhancers is that although they may be a long way away from the genes that they control, they seem to be in this same topological space as the gene that they control, these so-called so topologically associated domains. Um, that people see in, with high C maps and things. Um, so it's quite clear that these, these structures have got some relationship to long range gene um, activation by distant enhancers. Uh, and the edges of these domains tend to be- Can I ask a quick question on that? Yeah, yeah. So just for people like trying to like visualize, so you've just mentioned TADs. Mm. What exactly is a TAD? Like what actually makes up the TAD? Does that make so, sense? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, TADs are extracted or called from high C genomic data. Um, so in a way, it's just an operational definition. You know, the, you get these triangular heat maps that people see, um, uh, which say that within the triangle, all the sequences within the triangle like to interact with other sequences within the triangle more than they do with the triangle next door down the genome. <laughs> and, and so the, the boundary between the two or the insulation domain between the two, that they're very often marked by binding sites for the zinc finger protein CTCF. So that seems to be important. And then it's also quite clear from other beautiful, beautiful experiments done by the field, not by my lab at all, uh, over the years that these topologically associated domains are generated by the cohesin complex. Um, mm. This, this uh, motor which seems to be able to move very fast up and down our genome, trapping chromatin as it goes and kind of spooling it in uh, into a kind of more condensed state. Uh, and then it's, that seems to be blocked when it hits the CTCF sites at the edge. So it's loop, cohesin mediated loop extrusion makes the TADs um, and CTCF molecules at the boundaries stop cohesin moving into the next door TAD. Mm -hmm. um, so one way we've tried to go about looking at how long-range enhancers work in that context is to take out the CTCF sites at the boundaries of TADS. Uh, we've done that in, in, in mice and then to test because a lot of the long-range enhancers are involved in developmental decisions that you can't mimic in cell culture. So you've really got to work in vivo in the animal to, mm -hmm. to extract the information in the phenotype. So then we generate mice from uh, these mutants uh, cells uh, that might be lacking CTCF sites and ask do the enhancers work still? Uh, yeah. Um, and, and for the most part, the answer is yeah, actually, the, the enhancers still work okay. Um, just trying to break more, you know, we're trying to do more and more disruption to see how far we can break the tad before we really see um, mm. enhancer function being yeah. severely affected. So that, that was quite an negative result if you like that with yeah, I was gonna say that is interesting because yeah. I'm guessing that perhaps maybe you expected the opposite to see a phenotype. Yeah, yeah we did. Well, I mean it would be easier to publish if there was a phenotype yeah. than trying to publish that actually didn't, didn't really matter that much. Not I'm not saying it doesn't matter at all, but but yeah there wasn't an easy obvious phenotype. Mm -hmm. the, the second way we're doing doing it, which I'm really really excited about is, is in cell culture, in mouse embryonic stem cells, where rather than delete the elements 
we are stopping the mechanism, we're stopping cohesion mediated loop extrusion using this these new tools called degrons mm -hmm. <coughs> excuse me <coughs> so so the i've just said i just said a while about genetics is great and, and it is because genetics is slow uh, you yeah. know so you, you take an element out and then you know you make an animal or you clone a cell line or something and you watch sometime down the line what the phenotype might be um so you, you can you know sometimes it's hard to know what's a direct and what's an indirect consequence so Degrons uh, were uh, developed several years ago uh, as a way to very rapidly deplete a protein from a cell within half an hour, an hour, two hours, really, really quickly, and, and then look very acutely afterwards at what the consequence is. Um, so uh, very generous collaborators in Oxford and San Francisco sent us Degron cell lines for CTCF, for the mm -hmm. TAD boundaries and for cohesin, the machinery that makes the TADs. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so we've been able to acutely remove um, the process of making TADs from cells. Mm -hmm. Fine. But then you say, oh, but, but the enhancers you want to look at only work in development. So that's not very useful, is it? Uh, and that's true. So the other thing my lab has been developing over the last three or four years is um, to activate enhancers synthetically not have to wait for development to activate them through binding of specific transcription factors, but to make our own transcription factors that we can add to the cell to activate an enhancer when we want to. So wow. we've, we've combined those two tool, tools now of activating long range enhancers like the limb enhancer for Sonic Hedgehog with the mm -hmm. synthetic transcription factor we add to the cells and then acutely removing cohesin or CTCF and asking does that enhancer still work? Mm -hmm. and, and that comes up with two very interesting answers. First answer is it doesn't matter if you take CTCF away, so that fits with our genetics in the mouse. That actually, does, the the boundaries don't seem to matter so much. But 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 taking cohesin away is absolutely essential for the long range enhancers to work. So right. there's something about cohesin mediated loop extrusion that allows long range enhancers to work. We don't know what that is yet. But, but I think it's, it's, I'm really excited that we kind of have that real mechanistic insight now and kind of experimental proof. that they Do you really have any matter. theories? <laughs> <laughs> I have two. I, one, is, one is that the cohesion just pushes something along the chromosome. Yep. So it's a bit like the original tracking models. Yep. Um, and the other... And, I, and again, that's feasible for relatively close enhancers. I, I still find it hard to reconcile with an enhancer in base pairs away, but it could be. Uh, the second is that what, what we've seen by imaging actually is when we take the cohesin away, the chromatin becomes very decompacted and spreads out. Okay. So I think part of the process of cohesin mediated loop extrusion is to keep the chromatin compact and confined. Yeah. And so I think it's about pure physical distance in the nucleus, which goes back to this idea of transcriptional hubs and just being in the right sphere of influence for an mm -hmm. enhancer to turn a gene on. So that, again, is my my kind of current top model in my head. Okay. That that's what's important. It's sheer physical distance. Yeah. That you've got to be within, I don't know what the distance is going to be, 200, 300, 400 nanometers between an enhancer and a promoter in order for them to be able to talk to each other in a meaningful yeah. way. So cohesion's like responsible for keeping them in that short distance. Yes. Yes. Period. Yeah. 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 And so 
when like we've done an episode before with well someone actually in our lab Jared Wolf and so he looks at like a lot um he looks a lot at like um the relationship between histone modifications and enhancers so is that something that you like have to think about I know you mentioned like these transcriptional hubs mm. and you mentioned like artificial transcription factors mm. what kind of like what things come into this is there anything uh yeah, so the, the artificial transcription factor that we, we make are based upon the activation domain from a virus. Uh, it's called VP16 because mm -hmm. it's been used in the transcription field for decades and decades. Uh, and actually, we know that this trans, this uh, factor, from, which comes from a herpes virus, actually docks onto the mediator complex, which is the co-activator for transcription. It's what bridges transcription factors to RNA polymerase too. Mm -hmm. So what we're essentially doing with these artificial transcription factors is, is sucking in the transcription machinery to the enhancer artificially. Mm. Uh, and actually we do modify the histones at the same time. So we did show um, that we acquire HGK27 acetylation, for example, at the enhancer when we synthetically activate it. So we suck in all the right things to activate the enhancer and make it the right environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. I had a question as well, when you mentioned earlier about um, actually, first question was, you mentioned earlier about how when you take out these CTCF sites, mm. there's no, like, change in phenotype. Mm. Did you take them all out or did you take, like, individual ones out and different combinations? Yeah, really good question. So we, in, in the paper we published, which was in development a couple of years ago now, we took out single sites in mm. different animals. So each animal had one missing mm -hmm. from around the sonic hedgehog tad. And now what we're doing is taking multiple ones out yeah. to see if we take out two or three or four or five. Yeah. When, when do we break the system? Right. Uh, yeah. So that's, yeah, that's what we're doing at the moment. But, but in the Degron story, of course, we're taking away all the CTCF. So it's, in a sense, we're taking away all the sites and, and we still are able to activate long range enhancers. Mm -hmm. um, what, what we don't know yet in that experiment is well, whether now we get ectopic activation of genes by the enhancer. So the enhancer starts activating genes in the next door TAD rather than in its yeah. own TAD. That's a possibility, uh, yeah. which, we, which we need to explore, um, but haven't done yet. So what do you think you, you'll you see with that? Because my first thought would maybe be if you take the CTCF sites out, which are at the edges of the TAD, mm. that might have a greater effect. Do you think that might be the case? or do you no, still because, no, no, because that's what we did in the first paper. We took the ones out of the edge. Um, that's where we, indeed, where we were expecting to see the major effect and we didn't. And, and we did not see ectopic activation um, in that context either. Um, Interesting. So, yeah, it, it wasn't what, what we or the field expected, actually. Yeah, no, not at all. Yeah. At all, but they're always the interesting. I was going to say that's the good. That's the that's the fun stuff, though, isn't it? Sometimes. Yeah. No, like, it is. It makes you. Problem. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It okay. Makes so, you want to tear your hair out for yeah. days, but then it's quite exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So if that's not the mechanism. What is? Yeah. 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 No, that's a fun bit of science, isn't it? When you don't quite get the answer you expected. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> it's fun when you start, you know, trying to come up with theories. Originally, you are like really annoyed, and then you start trying to come up with stuff. Um, as well, you mentioned about how CTCF stops cohesion from looping. Yeah. Do we know how exactly that works? Yeah, yeah, not my work at all, but but some really lovely structural biology has been done. Uh, and actually CTCF um, competes for a binding site with the cohesive molecule itself. So it actually is a physical interaction. Mm -hmm. 
And, then, and there's another protein in the cell called Wapple, whose job it is to take cohesin off the chromosome. So cohesin is always being loaded on, extrudes, comes off, loads. So it's a dynamic process all the time going on. Um, and, and CTCF blocks the binding site for Wapple. So it kind of stalls cohesin and stops it being removed mm -hmm. at the edges of the topologically associated domain. So yeah, no, that's, that's all coming together really beautifully through structural biology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. I find mm. it really interesting that like the, like the whole CTCF part of it. Yeah. Um, I'm really interested to see like what you'll find when you're taking out single sites because yeah. Yeah. like, I don't know what your thoughts are on whether this could be potentially something that you might see, but I think it would be really interesting. Like maybe if you, so how many, like how many normal, normally how many CTCF, CTCF sites are in a TAD? Well, well, obviously, the, well, it, it it can depend on the tab, but the Sonic Hedgehog tab, which is what we're we're mutate we mutate, has um, one site at the left hand boundary, two mm -hmm. sites at the right hand boundary, but then it's got a second site, just in front of the Sonic Hedgehog gene, and then there's another site right in the middle of the tab. Mm -hmm. um, so we've taken all of those five out individually, and now we're taking them out in combinations. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I like to go into an experiment with an open mind, so I'm not, I don't prejudge what I might expect. Yeah. 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 yeah, it'd be interesting to see, like, if there's just, like, one combination that yeah. actually mm -hmm. has, has yeah. an effect on what yeah. that can teach you about how it all works. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. Um, or, or, you know, you might see the case that no, you know, it doesn't, doesn't matter. It might, yeah, absolutely, uh, and then and then people will say, well, maybe the sonic hedgehog locus is weird, and maybe indeed, maybe it is. Maybe every locus is different. I mean, which yes. case, we've got a long way to go. <laughs> got a lot of research to do. Then, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I don't think sonic hedgehog is that weird. <laughs> it might be a bit extreme in its enhancers, but I don't think it's atypical. Yeah, mm. but I think overall, I mean, it's likely that even if that is the case, that they are all unique. There's got to be you know a common trend yeah, yeah. No, of course there has there's got to be an underlying common mechanism mechan yeah yeah you just have to just have to find like out what it is <laughs> yeah no absolutely absolutely just that small hurdle to get over yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah definitely um i have a question um actually from my supervisor <laughs> mm -hmm. which i feel like might be a good time to ask it okay so He's interested, so this is um, Dr. Nicolay Radizabet from Queen Mary. Um, so he's interested, is there any impact of the duration of the con contact between um, an enhancer and a promoter on gene regulation? So, do, and also, um, do we need cohesion to mediate enhancer promoter contacts for a longer period of time? Or do you think short contacts are enough to activate a gene? And mechanistically, how might that work? Yeah, that, that's that's those. Are, I don't know the answer to those questions. They are important ones. It gets back to the dynamics, doesn't it? How poor, poor we are at understanding the dynamic aspects. So yeah, do, does an enhancer have? If I can paraphrase the question, does an enhancer have to stay close to a gene all the time for the yep. gene to be on, or could it could it be like a hit and run? You know, yeah. One 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 thing happens, the enhancer kind of activates the gene promoter and then that's it for a while and that you only then have to have the contact it, it could be either of those i i, I don't know uh, and uh, yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't want to put my money on either camp at the moment mm -hmm. yeah it's an interesting question isn't it yeah it is, it is yeah and and uh, 
because of our limited ability to control very fast dynamics, I think I find it very hard to think of what the right experiment is to do that. Yeah, actually. I mean, oh, well, yeah, I'm trying to think, you know, one, one, one nice thing about the Degron experiment, of course, is it's reversible. So you can degrade a protein and then bring it back again. So in, in theory, you could it's remove handy. cohesin and then you could reintroduce it and, and see what happens. But again, that it probably, it's probably too slow because it takes hours. Uh, whereas here we're probably talking yeah, the scale of seconds, minutes, hours. Yeah. 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 So yeah, important questions. I, I can't think of the right experiment at the moment that, that would test it. Yeah, like we said, it's just so difficult, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. The whole yeah. board trying to come up with ways to look at it. Yeah. That's gonna look at the right thing at the right time. Yeah, and sometimes you just have to say, well, actually, I, I you know, I don't think we have got the right tools at the moment to answer that question. It, it, you know, sometimes science is just the art, art of the possible. You know, you do your best with the tools you have at the time. Yeah. Um again to come back to this thing about like the um the hubs that you were mentioning mm. um forgive me if i'm completely like on the wrong path here but i feel like i remember you talking about like um phase phase separation yep in relation to this yep that that is one of the models of how what these hubs are that they are formed by the process of liquid liquid phase separation which is this biophysical transition um, you can certainly create uh, in vitro, and certainly quite a lot of biology appears to depend on it. Like the nucleolus is a classical phase separated structure. Yeah. Um, but again, it, it, it could be the model, but again, we don't really have the right tools to prove it, it is the model. There are other ways you could have hubs, other kind of biophysical states that the proteins could be in that are not liquid liquid phase separation. That would also be compatible with the model and again we just don't have the tools that allow us to tell which one it is you know we we've got very very crude tools at hand that, that can disrupt some of these structures like hexane diol can dissolve liquid liquid phase condensates but you know it's, it's an aliphatic alcohol that does all kinds of stuff to the cell um so it's not a very refined or specific uh, tool um and I don't think our imaging tools are really good enough to prove that the condensates that people report really are liquid liquid phase separated structures. Yeah. So it's an open question. Yeah. Ideas are just too, too ahead of the tools at the moment, aren't they? Yeah, but, but it's nice because it's driving thinking. It's driving new thinking. And, you know, people are going away from the enhanced promoter loop model now and, and much more towards this idea of condensates. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've heard like a lot about this whole like phase phase separation thing and about like condensates and all of this stuff. Um, especially like I heard um, um, one about like MECP2 and condensates and I was like, wow, this is so interesting. Yeah. And we were talking about it in our lab actually. And Radu was saying like, it's a really sort of like hot topic. Yeah, like, very hot topic. Yeah. And I thought, oh God, I feel like I don't really know that much about it. So what exactly is, what exactly is phase phase separation? So it, they, they, it's, it's a biophysical change of state where particular molecules become concentrated in a small volume rather than, you know, it's a liquid. It's, it's like, you know, it's mayonnaise, oil and water. That's, that's liquid liquid phase separation. Right? So they, they separate into two distinct phases from each other. 
uh, and certain proteins concentrate inside the droplet and others are excluded. Yeah. And so it's a way to allow you to concentrate particular molecules in a very, to very high concentration in a very small space in a nucleus that unlike cytoplasm doesn't have mem internal membranes to compartmentalize stuff. So it's a way to organize things without membranes. Um, and, and very often it can be, it's driven by particular kinds of chemistry, you know, particular times, type of amino acid interactions, it can be electrostatic, but they can also be hydrophobic. Um, very often it's driven by the disordered domains in proteins. And what's fascinating is that so many transcription factors and so much of the transcription machinery have the kind of disordered domains which would facilitate um, phase separation. Yeah. And, you know, if, if, if you drive the, the separation too far, you end up not with a liquid inside the droplet, but a solid, like a gel state. Um, and, and, that, and that's, you know, that, that becomes more irreversible, which you don't want. But, but being able to prove what the actual physical state of a protein is inside a, a real cell is very difficult. A lot of the phase, the liquid phase separation field is being driven by in vitro experiments where, where you can really see, you can make these oil-like oil droplets um, by, you know, visualize them by tagging specific proteins with fluorochromes and driving them to very high concentration. But that's a long way away from being able to do that in real cells. And, and measure the concentration of a protein inside the droplet versus outside. So, but, but, but I think it's a great field um, and it, it is going to change the way we design experiments and think about things, I think. Yeah, definitely. So how exactly does that then relate to the whole enhancer thing? Is it the idea that like around enhancers or promoters um, have like gathering of... Yep. Well, well. So, so to have a condensate, you need to seed it, if you like. You, you need to start rating the concentration of proteins in a local environment. Uh -huh. uh, and to do that for transcription factors, the only way to really do that is to have them bind to a DNA sequence. So the, it enhances the scaffold on which you build the droplet. That's the way I see it. Right. It, it helps you to, to accumulate that, that concentration of proteins. And then the promoter's just got to be close enough to, to the droplet that it can that can engage with the droplet itself. Mm. But yeah, the enhancer's critical for starting the whole reaction that gives you the phase. Mm. Yeah. That's so interesting. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. About it in, in that way. Yeah. Um yeah, I guess that's like comes back to what we we're saying about how like you have quite a unique, I guess, like it's good that you got that biochemistry background yeah, yeah no, absolutely yeah it's taking me back to yeah I don't think I've really done well obviously I did a biochemistry module in my undergraduate yeah. but I always find it quite hard to like understand these more like chemistry based um yeah topics. Like, I always find it quite yeah. hard for me I like to visualize stuff like I like to visualize what things look like and how they might mm -hmm. be working. with that I kind of I mean when you said about like oil, oil and water and it makes a little bit more sense but I do just, I always find it difficult to visualise stuff like that. Yeah. No, no, it well, it's hard to, isn't it, when it's not something that you can't visualise. No, no, yeah, you can't see, they're, they're too small to see, that's the trouble. Yeah, they yeah. are, they are too small to see. And and we we don't know the concentration of proteins inside them. Um, yeah. You know, we don't know those basic parameters. Yeah. So, well, yeah, on this topic, I kind of brought up this topic because um, Jareth actually had a question as well that he wanted me to ask you. Okay. About 
this topic. So he was saying about how, like you mentioned in, again, at the talk at Queen Mary about how um, the short enhancer promoter contact before an increase in gene expression um, could be to create sort of this like phase separated bubble. Mm, mm. So he was wondering, do you think that the enhancer slash promoter could be like a mechanism to start the phase separation at a small point so that the barrier that's formed by the interfacial tension could expand more easily? I, I don't think the promoter plays a role in initiating the phase because because there's yeah, you just because there's nothing at well it's not saying there's nothing at the promoter there is something at the promoter but it's the repression machinery so it's in a diff, diff, completely different compartment it's yeah. the enhancer that does the initiation uh, and then the, the, the promoter will get sucked up into that area at some point once once the concentrations yeah once the concentrations are built enough up enough and the volume of that condensate or hub has grown enough for the for the promoter to be able to join it mm -hmm. i'm not sure that answers the question but it's probably about, about the best i can do yeah i know that makes sense yeah it's just so yeah. interesting yeah they're all i think all, all the action is at the enhancer yeah okay mm -hmm. and so you, you know when you were talking about how you were using um the like synthetic transcription factors mm. Are you using them in trying to inve like investigate this a little bit further as well? Or not? Yes, yes, there we are. I think it's a it's a good tool for investigating these. Um, we be, be, because we think these are, are so such dynamic structures. A, a lot of the biological models that we use are not really appropriate. Um, so, but we have kind of narrowed down to a biological system where we think we've got enough kind of kinetic control on the enhancer to start to pull that apart. And that is the addition of uh, estrogen to breast cancer cells. So we know that the enhancers that respond to that signal come on within about five to 10 minutes of adding estrogen to the cells. So we've got a nice narrow window there to look at the initiating events where the enhancers become active because they bind estrogen receptor and we know the target genes and and we can mm. start to visualize the relationship between the enhancer and the promoter over you know five minutes 10 minutes 20 minutes 30 minutes so and, and it's very precisely controlled because we, we're just dropping estrogen onto the cells so that's the system we're working with at the moment to try and investigate that the, the synthetic transcription factors the way we've designed them don't give us that kind of temporal control at the moment we'd like to redesign them so that we could but at the moment we just transfect cells with them and wait for them to be expressed so you know quite quite the level of temporal control we need mm. well sorry to ask another question about them then as soon as mm. you just mentioned that you might not be using them but um my first question that came to my head when you were talking about the synthetic transcription factors is how do you know which transcription factors to use at particular enhancers mm. Well, we, we, we know, you know pretty much all enhancers will, will have to recruit the co-activator mediator at some point because that's the bridge to RNA polymerase. So right. really, really it, by using VP16, it's a kind of a generic transcription factor. Uh, and we're just yeah. directing it to different sites in the genome by fusing it to, you know, guided proteins guided to particular DNA sequences. So either DEDCAS9 or actually we prefer to use the TAL effectors to direct it to particular sites in the genome, particular enhancers. Um, 
got unique ones for different enhancers no no, no we've just gone for very generic um, yeah. and you know and maybe we'll find different answers if we used different types of activating molecules but you know we have to start somewhere yeah is that something you're going to do in the future then you think yeah i don't know not sure there's so many things you can only do so, so many, many things, things you can do I think yeah. at the moment, I don't know what the right experiment would be to do in that regard. You know, what else would I choose other than VP16? Right. So I, I think not at the moment, actually. Okay. Can't choose something for, like, for the future. Yeah, because that was my thought, like, yeah. you use different transcription factors. And then again, if you did, would you perhaps see different... Might do, yeah. yeah. Might do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's entirely possible, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean... On that kind of, what are your most immediate plans for the future? Oh, most immediate. Well, well, obviously following up this this exciting finding about cohesion mediated loop extrusion and yeah. what its real role is in, in activating enhancers and uh, so that, yeah, that whole idea of, uh, of topologically associated domains, cohesion and activation, try, and trying to really unpick the mechanism much more. Um, but the other. The other thing, well, we're, we're also just finishing up a story about um, what we haven't really talked about, which is repression mechanisms. So yeah. my, my lab's worked on polycomb for a long time, which okay. is one of the major epigenetic pathways for gene repression. Uh, and it fascinates me because it, it, it very much has a major influence on 3D genome organization. Um, so we, we've shown that polycomb can bridge over incredibly long genomic distances, actually. In, many many millions of base pairs much much longer than I actually thought was possible uh, so we're looking at that in more detail and actually probably showing that it might these interactions might be mediated through phase separation mechanisms um, so so a little bit of work on that but the thing that, that that really excites me actually is going back to is really embracing the synthetic biology idea so for the for the, you know, when we've looked at specific loci like Sonic Hedgehog, um, and we're also looking at the PAC-6 lockers as well, you know, we have these very complex regulatory domains, ten, many, many tens of enhancers driving genes at different times of places, you know, and we can mutate one or mutate another and do, do all these small individual genetic manipulations and then test the consequence in cells or animals. And that's okay, but it's a bit slow. And you, you can only really ask one question at a time. Yeah. Um, but of course, we now have the ability to actually rewrite genomes completely from scratch and to design them any way you want. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. we've, we've teamed up with Jeff Bokey in New York Genome Center. So he was the person who drove the um, synthetic yeast genome project. So they completely rewritten the yeast genome from scratch, resynthesized oh, wow. it basically. <laughs> So um, it's quite a funny story, really. Um, so this is work on the, the PAX-6 locus. So it's another complex developmental locus extending over about half a million base pairs. When I was a postdoc trying to clone the Wilms tumor gene, um, I isolated a yeast artificial chromosome that contains the human locus. Okay. Uh, it's, got, it's got about 450 kilobases of the human genome contained mm -hmm. in the yeast, a budding yeast artificial chromosome. Oh. Uh, and, and we know uh, that that, clone contains all the regulatory information you need for PAC6 because we complemented a mouse mutant with it before. So Jeff's taken that yeast of artificial chromosome 
and he's now going to redesign it in budding yeast. So we're going to say, well, what happens if we take all the enhancers on the right-hand side and put them to the left? What happens if we take the repeats out? What happens if we you know, move all this stuff around? What happens if we take the, the enhancers that are in the introns and move them upstream, mm. downstream? So we could do, you can ask all, all those questions because you can just rewrite it any way you want. Um, wow. And then we will try and test the function of all those rewritten versions of the genome back into mammalian cells. So, so this, this I, I think, you know, yeah. for the next five years, I think this is going to be a really fun thing to start doing. And I think yeah. for the future, being able to rewrite large bits of the genome is going to be so important for understanding function. Yeah, yeah. that's so cool. So, we, so we've just started that. that. fascinating. Yeah, yeah no, yeah. it's, it's, it's mind-blowing, actually, that you can just, yeah, start from scratch. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I know these are the important bits of DNA. Here's all the enhancers. Do they have to be in this order or not? Do they have to be in this spacing? Yeah. We can answer all of that. That's the thing, is it? Because I feel like we know, like, the order and combination of things, especially when we're talking about epigenetics, is so, like, important. And it is a very hard question to to ask to know where to start with things like this. But I, I, I always think, like, when we're talking about epigenetics, looking at like combination of different things and moving mm. stuff around, like that's yeah. Yeah. where all the interesting things yeah. lie, I think. Um, and this is just on a massive scale. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. It's no, honestly, it's so interesting. It sounds so yeah. cool. I can see why you're so excited because I can like see on your face that you get yeah. really to talk about it's it. A, it's a bit wacky as well, which I like. <laughs> I'm yeah. at the stage of my and career where I can be a bit wacky. And I love that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, no it's lovely to see when people genuinely love their research you know how excited yeah. about the future I, and I also like it because it evolved a reagent I created when I was a postdoc in the 1990s so I managed oh, wow. to find this clone in the freezer <laughs> and, and and just find get it, it in the out. freezer and it, it grew okay and yeah we sent it over to New York and they they sequenced it and it's perfect you know 400 oh, wow. kilobases of the human genome yeah it's great amazing keep your lab boat keep your lab notes and keep a good good map yeah. of where your stuff is in the freezer because yeah. you never know when you'll need it <laughs> that's the example we needed Wendy yeah that is we needed it'd been yeah. in the freezer for almost 30 yeah. years <laughs> oh wow gosh um anything then <laughs> yeah now i'm like oh god keep keep all the the virtual lab books up to date yeah. Yeah. Commented. <laughs> um another question that i had was um sorry i'm just going back again yeah i always do um Talking about in, like enhancers, so you know how we have like, uh, well, are there like different enhancers? I don't know. We, we hear people talk about like putative enhancers, super enhancers, and all of these different things. Do you think that if you was to like do some of your work, like your future work or past work, looking individually, individually at these different like, would you say are they classes of enhancers? Is that the right term or probably? Um, um, I don't yeah. know. The term, yeah. <laughs> um, I, 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 I've stayed away from the super enhancer thing because I'm not really sure what they are. Um, but, but some enhancers are very simple. So we, we talked about the breast cancer experiments where we add estrogen to the cells. Those yeah. enhancers are incredibly simple. They probably bind two transcription factors, not much more than that, to activate yeah. the gene. Very, very simple. Whereas the enhancers for sonic hedgehog that work in very precise developmental contexts, they're, they're quite large. Mm -hmm. you know, they're of kilobase in size or so. We don't know how many how many different transcription factors they are 
binding uh, in vivo, but, but probably a very, very complex cocktail because that's what gives the right specificity in, in time and place and development. So they are much more complicated beasts probably than the simple yeah. uh, enhancers that are responding to nuclear hormones. But, but fundamentally, they, they're still the same thing. They're the sites where transcription factors bind to activate gene expression. Mm -hmm. But yeah, why, why some genes only need that very simple combination of transcription factors and others need a much more complicated cocktail, we don't know actually. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. Do you think like the results of your future work could be different if you're looking at these, if you're looking at different types and nobody can see me because this is yeah. the I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> She's doing air quotes. <laughs> yeah, because so yeah. if you're talking about how like the whole like phase separation thing and mm. Mm -hmm. like if they require different transcription factors for yeah. depending on what enhance you're looking at the results could potentially be different yeah it could be yeah no absolutely yeah i wouldn't exclude that because yeah. as well like histone modifications and also just dna methylation come into it as well i don't think dna methylation's got a role to play at all in enhancers actually I, I know that's probably a controversial thing to say but no, no I, I, the, the, these enhancers become demethylated but i think they become demethylated because the transcription factors bind there and the dna methyltransferases can't see them anymore you can't get there so I think DNA methylation is a, pa a passive player in, in right, enhancer yeah. activation. That's an interesting, interesting theory. Mm, yeah. Well, there's always the argument, really, isn't there? Like, is it um... cause or consequence? Cause or yeah. yeah. Cause yeah, or yeah no, you, you must always ask yourself that question. Yeah. 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 Which again is another difficult thing to. Yeah. Yeah. But the, 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 yeah histo <laughs> the histo modifications are important. Um, yeah. More important than DNA methylation. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm because they are acting to recruit some of the, they're, they're changing the structure of the underlying chromatin, changing the nucleosomes, yeah. recruiting molecules like BRD4 as a reader, you know, so they're, they're doing an important job in helping to build up the, the biochemical machinery you need for transcription. Mm. So Wendy, if you could develop, like if you could, you know, like when you're a kid and someone says to you, like, if you could be a superhero, like what would your power be? What would you pick? If you could make, so like, I just feel like a common theme sort of with this chat has been um, a lot of things would be really interesting to look at, but we don't have the tool right now. So if you could like develop, if you could like click your fingers and have mm. a tool that would work how you wanted it to work, what, what, would, what would that be? What do you think the field is like missing? Uh, I, I, I think it would be like a tiny, tiny wee robotically <laughs> controlled camera that could go inside the nucleus and travel around and image the genome. <laughs> Maybe with me inside it in a wee supplement kind of thing. So they could shrink you right down. Yeah, yeah. Like, honey, honey, I shrunk the kids kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, little mini Wendy going through. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I want to go inside the nucleus and just yeah, drive around having a look at how stuff works. Yeah. With your little notebook taking notes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I want, yeah. That's brilliant. I wasn't <laughs> expecting that answer, but that's a good answer. That's a very good answer. <laughs> See, see, anything. Seeing is believing, so yeah, it's got to be, it's yeah. got to be visual, yeah. Yeah. I said anything. Yeah, yeah you did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I, I don't expect it to happen anytime soon. Okay. <laughs> One day, maybe. You never know, you never know. Well, I mean, we always end with, you know, the, the question of how, can people contact you? How, yeah, how can people contact you if you're Twitter, happy for them to? Look, look me up on Google or Twitter. Yeah, you'll find me. Yeah. 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 Amazing. Yeah, yeah well, sounds yeah, great. Um, all that's 
left to say really is thank you so much for joining us today. It's been nice uh, to talk to you. A lot of the time, yeah, pleasure. Go a little bit over my head because uh-huh. it's not really. I find it so interesting, but it's not my particular field. Uh-huh. Um, but no, I've yeah, it's been really great to talk to you today. It's fascinating. Yeah, really interesting. I know nice you're to probably... talk about histone modifications rather than just methylation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. No, it's been great. So thank you so much. You know, methylation is important in other places, just not in enhancers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But yeah, no, thank you. We know you're really busy, so we do really, truly appreciate your time. Really That's appreciate great. your yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, thank you, yeah. And, and good luck with the podcast series. Yeah, yeah thank you so much yeah and good luck with your phds oh yeah <laughs> thank you really well. that's great <laughs>Thank you for joining us for this episode. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at The Genomics Lab. That's got a capital G and a capital L. You can actually also find both of us on Instagram at a genomics PhD and at PhD underscore Ellie. Finally, be sure to subscribe to us on your favourite podcast platform and we will see you all in the next episode. Thank you again for listening.